Welcome to New Hope Church's Sermon Series Podcast. This week's message touches on subjects that may not be suitable for younger audiences. We rate this episode as PG-13. The ancient and modern lie is that we are our own. We belong to ourselves. That is where we are meant to find comfort. The truth is, the gospel unites us with Jesus, and we belong to Him. And this isn't some subjective belonging that comes and goes, it is objective belonging rooted in the work of Jesus. We're in the sixth week of the Good Life teaching series. Our lessons have been exploring how the good news of Jesus intersects with every aspect of our lives. Our scripture reading for the day is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. The following message was recorded at our in-person services on Sunday, November 7th, 2021. Visit newhopepdx.org to download teaching notes or to watch the full-length service. All right. Good morning, everyone. How's it going? Awesome. What do, what do humans and zoo animals have in common? I'm so glad you asked. I uh, love to go to zoos. Portland Zoo is incredible. Anybody Portland Zoo? Yeah, a lot of you have been. We spent a lot of our lives, or I did, my, my wife, her whole life in Madison, Wisconsin, and there was a zoo there called the Vilas Zoo. And when our girls were very young and you were looking for things to do to calm your children, and the, you just go to the zoo because it was free, so we just go to the zoo. And my favorite uh, animal at the zoo, well, one of my favorites, is the big cats the lions and the tigers, and at Vilas Zoo, you could go at a certain time and they'd be feeding them, and in anticipation of being fed, the lions would roar. And they would roar, so it was a very big zoo. I'm not, I'm not being hyperbolic, it would shake the entire zoo. So you'd feel like chills going down your spine. And I just love it. And then they'd come, they'd eat, and then if you've gone to the zoo and seen the big cats, this is typical behavior. They would pace, right, back and forth, right in front of you. They get really, really close. You're glad that glass is thick. And I would tell our girls, they were very young, I'd be like, they're sizing us up for a snack. And that's probably not like a joke you use with little kids, probably not appropriate. What I found out, and as I read an article about this recently, they weren't sizing up for a snack. It's a, it's a form of mental illness in animals. It's called zoocosis. Zoocosis. See, you learned something at church today. Zoocosis is when animals enter into a state of repetitive behavior with no meaning or purpose. Sounds a lot like humans. And this is a contention made by Dr. Alan Noble in a new book. A picture will come up here uh, called uh, You Are Not Your Own. It's a really, really fantastic book. I tore through it in like just a few days. And I'm going to be touching on it several times in the message today. Alan argues that as, as, as humans, we're going through a form of zoocosis, that we've gotten locked into doing things again and again and again and again with no meaning and purpose, and it leads to this abysmal state of restlessness. The distinct difference is that us humans, we build our own cages. We are in, I don't know what week we are now, we're in the middle of a series called The Good Life. And this series is connected to the last series we did about the gospel, that we don't have a shrunken gospel, we have a full gospel that has claim over not just our eternal state, but so much more, and it's bigger and more beautiful than we could ever imagine. So this series is uh, interlocking certain uh, topics from our life that we touch on every day, like vocation and division and money and suffering and justice. 
and seeing what this big, bold, beautiful gospel does to transform them. And today we're gonna look at the topic of the gospel and identity. The gospel and identity. Let me, let me pray for us before Dina comes up and reads our scripture. Father God, just thanks uh, for your great, great love for us. We think of our brothers and sisters throughout uh, our incredible city of Portland, <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches that are laboring in the name of Jesus for good. And we pray blessings upon their gatherings this morning and blessings upon our gatherings. We know that, especially with this topic that I think will hit very, very close to home for us today, uh, that we need the power and the perspective of your Holy Spirit to open our minds and our hearts, to see in new ways and to experience the freedom uh, that we uh, were redeemed uh, to experience. So have your way with us this morning, Father. May your word come alive as Dina reads it, we pray. In the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. This is the word of the Lord. I know what you're thinking. Everybody's like, oh, boy. <laughs> and let's see. Emily made the announcement, right? We're going to be a little PG-13 territory today. It'll be okay, Milo. And uh, you can have coloring sheets if you want, and maybe adults need coloring sheets. So any adults, go ahead. And, it's going to be okay. Before we get into the passage, I want to go back to Alan's book and, and lay the framework of what we're going to go after today, which, which I will call the fundamental modern lie that we all buy, buy into. But I think we'll see that it's an ancient lie as well. So before we get into the passage, let me lay some of this groundwork. The fundamental modern lie is this idea that we are our own, that we belong to ourselves. That's what I'm gonna to try to dismantle today. It is uh, woven so deeply into our psyches and into our culture and frankly into our churches that we don't even see it. It's like uh, asking a fish, how's the water today? And the fish is like, what water? It's so ubiquitous that we don't even know that it's a lie, we've gotten used to it. Uh, this idea came uh, to the forefront 
hundreds of years ago after the Enlightenment, uh, Nietzsche, other philosophers, they begin to try to dismantle this idea that God exists. And so they attempted the death of God, which led, I'm going through like massive topics and really simplifying them. But for simplification, it led to this idea of humanism. You remove God from the world and you are left with humanism, the idea that we humans are at the center of everything and that we have self-sovereignty and we are our own. Here's the irony, humanism is essentially dehumanizing and I hope that you will see that by the end of the message today. Alan has this great phrase in this book that he said, if you buy into this lie that we are our own and we belong to ourselves, then there is the responsibility of self-belonging the responsibility of self-belonging. So think about this. We remove God from, from the world. God's gone. You are the center of the universe. You are your own. You have full autonomy, full sovereignty, which is that idea is just driven deeply into our world and into our churches. Then Alan said, if that's true, then we have this responsibility of self-belonging, and it's simply unbearable. What are some examples of the responsibility of self-belonging? Here's a couple brief ones. And this will be important as we understand what Paul's doing in the passage. The first one is the, the responsibility of meaning. If you are your own, then you are left the responsibility of creating your own meaning. And essentially, if God doesn't exist, there really is no meaning. It's all just a game. Richard Dawkins is one of the most noted atheists in the world, and he says it honestly. He says the world we live in, which he believes there's no God, has no design and no purpose and no meaning. He states the only reasonable mindset in a world without God is pitiless indifference. Pitiless indifference. And he's right. He's being honest. That's where humanism ends. It ends in a world with no meaning. That doesn't mean that you don't feel meaningful and you don't do meaningful things that feel that way, but there's no, there's no foundation of meaning. They're not really meaningful. And you bear the responsibility of creating that meaning. Have you ever heard people use this term? I know I've used it. I want to do this so I can feel alive. Isn't that a weird phrase? <laughs> like, we are alive. What do you mean you got to do something to feel alive? It th makes me think of the, the myth of Sisyphus. And you probably don't know Sisyphus, but you probably know the myth. And it's the guy that is constantly pushing the big rock up the hill, only to have it fall all the way back down again, and he pushes up. And that's what he does again and again and again for all of eternity. Well, Sisyphus is in hell, by the way. <laughs> this is a picture of what hell is. And it's the hell of bearing this responsibility of creating our own meaning. It's like lions pacing in a cage. Second, the responsibility of self-belonging, we are left with uh, determining what is right and wrong. If God does not exist, there's no objective right or wrong. So that's left up to each individual person to bear the responsibility of determining what is right and wrong. Uh, Mitya in Brothers Karamazov says, without God, everything is permissible. Without God, everything is permissible. That leads nowhere but anarchy. In a world of, of self-belonging where you and each individual person has to determine what's right and wrong, it means truth is not really truth. It's not a truth that binds us together and unifies us. Truth becomes a power play. Truth becomes your truth against my truth, and I think we see that on full display. Finally, the, the responsibility of self-belonging is deciding our own identity. And we'll get into this more as the, as the message unfolds. I just define identity as how we see ourselves. 
So if God doesn't exist and we're the center of the world and you belong to yourself and you are your own, you bear the responsibility of deciding who you are. Here's the deal that Alan brilliantly brings out in his book. All identity needs a witness. Like, all identity needs to be confirmed by people outside yourself or it's not an identity. And we see this on full display where people are like so clamoring to claim their identity and their identity is always shifting and changing. And now we have this massive apparatus called social media that affirms our identity. And essentially, I know I do, when I post, I don't post that often, but I'm on Facebook and Instagram and every once in a while I'll post and you can follow me at John, no, I'm just kidding. And when I post, right, I check. I make sure it's the best of the eight photos I took and that I like what I'm wearing. And, you know, of course I do. And you do as well. We're creating our identity. And then what happens in us when we get the like, the like, the like, the, the smile, the heart? It's affirming that identity we're always constructing. And we actually get dopamine hits. So we've got an, an, an entire apparatus out there that's not only uh, figured out how to quantify identity affirmation, but commodify it as well, make money off of it. Because they know that everybody's got to figure out who they are, and they've got to proclaim it to the world, and they've got to have witnesses. All of this, if, we, if we're all alone and we have to bear the responsibility of, of, of creating meaning and deciding what truth is and creating identity, the responsibility of that is simply unbearable. That's what Alan argues, and I totally agree with him. It's interesting, coming back to Scripture, uh, how Scripture defines sins is, is defined in many ways, but the, the core definition is going our own way. It's detethering ourselves from God and saying we're God. The prophets had another line that says whenever the people would sin, they would go and they did right in their own eyes. That is where everything starts to come apart. Alan concludes this. Hopefully this will whet your appetite to read his book. He says, uh, this responsibility of self-belonging uh, leads to perpetual inadequacy, a sense that life's never justified, our existence never validated, our identity's never secure, meaning is non-existent, values are never certain, and belonging is never attained. This sense of perpetual inadequacy leads to rampant insecurity, dehabilitating shame, profound weariness, depression, and self-medicating. Aren't you glad you came to church today? It's a really upbeat message. It leads to zoocosis, this pacing back and forth in cages of our own creation. We think we have this liberated, we are our own, we don't need anyone, we're self-sovereign. And it actually locks us in cages that leads to an abysmal state that we see on full display in our world. I walk our dogs through our neighborhood a lot, and uh, I always pass by this one house, and it has a sign, and, and it says, I think a picture will come up, it says, you are enough. And I don't know the people well that live there. I think that they're trying to encourage everybody in a tough time. They're trying to like, but every time I pass by that side, I look at it and I'm like, that's not true. Because it's not true. We're, we're not, you're not enough. And I'm not trying to shame anybody. Like we're created humans. We're not, we're not, we're meant to belong to someone else. The, uh, one of my favorite stories is Muhammad Ali, the great boxer. And uh, he, at the prime of his career, he was, he was on a flight and uh, the flight attendant passed by and he said, sir, you need to, you need to buckle up. And Muhammad Ali says, uh, Superman don't need a seatbelt. And she said, sir, Superman don't need an airplane. Buckle up. <laughs> and I think that's a little bit of the mentality that we carry. We think we don't need it. Like, we're self-sovereign. We don't, we, we desperately, we're created to need. We're created to belong. All right, so now let's get to, you know, we can, I call this the fundamental modern lie, which I think it is. 
but it's also an ancient lie. And that's exactly, uh, although Paul's using sex, and we won't get into it that much, he's really talking about the heart of this lie that had permeated the church at Corinth. So let's get into it. Uh, we, were in, uh, we were in the Corinthian letters a few weeks ago, if you remember, but just a quick review. We have two of the letters in our canon of Scripture, but Paul had written a previous one to them. So our first Corinthians is really the second letter to the Corinthians. We don't have the first letter. And this was a super, super large, diverse city. And the church was very, very diverse. So Paul's moved on. He's in Ephesus now. He's heard a ton of problems about division and chaos and, and moral incongruities in the church. And he's writing this letter to address all of those things. So as we get in the passage, you may read it and, and pull it up. This is one of those weeks that if you have it on your phone or it's in front of you, it would be really good to pull it up. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. And when maybe you're listening to Dina read it, and it wasn't really following. It was difficult to follow the logic. And that's true. It is when you're hearing it and reading it. When you're even looking at it, it's difficult. That's because Paul is using a form of argumentation called diatribe. And they would use it often in the first century. And what diatribe is, is you would quote your opponents or quote a counter perspective. He would quote something that he heard they were saying in the church in this instance, and then he gives it a retort. He gives it a response. The problem is in the Greek language in the original text, there's no quotation marks. So you're not sure, like, who's saying what? So I think in the NIV and other translations, you should have quotation marks, and I think they're pretty accurate. But I just, I just reconstructed the conversation on the screens for you. So this is, this is kind of the part we're going to look at. So Paul's quoting the Corinthians, and you'll see it's not a, a modern lie. It's a, it's, a, it's a very ancient lie, too. They say, I have the right to do anything. That's their way of saying, we're our own. We don't belong to anyone. Paul responds, but not everything's beneficial. And then he, he quotes them again. He repeats it again. I have the right to do anything, the Corinthians say. Paul's like, but I will not be mastered by anything. Then the Corinthians, he quotes them again. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food, and God will destroy them both. And then Paul responds, the body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So let's break this down. So Paul's quoting twice of them saying, we have the right to do anything. And when scripture quotes something twice or emphasizes that they want to draw your attention there, this is the primary deal that Paul's addressing in this text. They're essentially saying, we are our own. We don't need anyone. We're self-sovereign. And they had a shrunken gospel too. And apparently their shrunken gospel was, yes, Jesus is our savior. Jesus saved us so we can go to heaven when we die. But because of grace, we can go on and do whatever we want with our bodies. And Paul's like, oh, no, 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 no. You have a very small gospel if you think that. Because the gospel has claim on your bodies as well and how you live your life on this earth. That's what he's addressing. Previous, in chapter 10, Paul's addressing them saying they can eat any kind of food they want, even food that is uh, dedicated to idols. And then Paul switches topics from food into the topic of sex. And prior to this, uh, we know that there was incest in the church, a man that was sleeping with his father's wife, and Paul's addressing that, and they apparently didn't think there was anything wrong with that. And then Paul's also addressing this idea of, of prostitution in the church. Apparently, some of the followers of Jesus were saying, hey, we're saved, we follow Jesus, but we can do whatever we want with our bodies. It doesn't matter how we use our bodies sexually or what we eat. And Paul's like, you guys have no clue how big the gospel is. You are not your own. And so he begins to, to paint this new way of them seeing how they treat their bodies and how they think of their self-agency. 
Now, just for perspective, you may think, it, we come from, it, it, from different perspectives on this topic, you may think our world is highly sexualized, that it's just crazy stuff out there, and I think you can make a case for that. You have no idea if you look at the first century Roman Greco world. Compared to our world, it was like triple, triple, triple X. And the Corinthian city especially so. So these Corinthian believers, and they were very diverse, are coming in. They've seen Jesus as the Lord and Savior. They've, they come to the communion table. They're beginning to gather together, but they're still holding on to some of their habits. And that, that's, that, that's the same for, for, for us as well. So Paul's confronting this, and he's dismantling it with this truth. And this is the core verses I want us to focus on today, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. Do we hear that, church? You are not your own. And maybe right now you're like, oh, like that feels weird. It feels weird because the lie is so woven deeply into our souls. Paul's like, you are not your own. Why? You were bought with a price. And yes, Paul is, is referencing uh, the institution of slavery, which for, for modern readers, all of us are like, ugh, like why is he doing that? It's it, totally understandable. But why he's using that, he's not saying slavery is good or slavery is bad. He knows they understand the institution of slavery. Up to maybe 30% of the Roman Empire were enslaved at one point. There were slaves in the church and slave owners in the church. And so Paul knows they understand what it means to belong to someone else and what it means to have a really bad slave owner or maybe a really good one. And Paul's like, all of us belong to someone. He's like, you're crazy if you think that you're totally independent and self-sovereign. All of us belong to somebody. The gospel declares that you have been set free from the slavery of sin and death that will devastate your life and kill you. And you've been brought into the gospel of our Lord and Savior. You were bought with the price, the blood of Jesus. And you now, as you belong to Jesus, have been set free to live in a new way. That's what Paul is proclaiming. That we uh, are not our own, that we belong to Jesus. And if you don't listen to anything else I say, if you get all distracted by the sexual stuff and all that, like just remember that. We're not our own, we belong to Jesus. In, in 1563, the theological faculty of the Heidelberg University, which is present-day Germany, they constructed a catechism. And a catechism is just formulating uh, beliefs in a way that can be memorized and brought into our lives and practice. So they said, hey, we need a new catechism. Let's write a new one for this next generation so they can understand the core components of what it is to follow Jesus. And I really like this catechism because they use it in a question and answer uh, way. And this is the opening. This is the opening line of the catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism. What is our only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong in body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It's going to the heart of identity, how we see ourselves. And we always frame identity with the question of, like, who am I? I think the better question is, whose am I? Whose am I? 
I saw uh, Mitchell out here, and, and Mitchell, and I think Paul's here as well at the back. So uh, we got to witness their baptism, an incredible testimonies, gentlemen. It's, it's so awesome to see, see your, your testimony of the faithfulness of Jesus in your life. And, and if you remember, Pastor Mike was in the tank, and when you, when you baptize someone, you say you take them under the water, and I always say you hold them under as, as long as the number of sins they have in their life, and then you bring them, I'm just kidding. And then you say buried with Christ, risen with him to walk a new life. The very imagery of baptism, which all of us who follow Jesus, I hope you've been baptized. That's our public testimony. Buried with Jesus. This is identity language. Risen with him to walk a new life. The gospel claims our entire identity has been transformed. Paul 180 times uses this phrase, in Christ or through Christ. That's not a throwaway prepositional phrase. He's going to the heart of identity. Acts 17, 28a, in him we live and we move and we have our being. If we try to find our identity in what we create and what we think we are in the present moment, which frankly is always shifting, and we're clamoring out there on social media to get a witness that's just like, that's a cage. It's a prison. But our witness is Jesus. We don't need a witness. We got it in Jesus. And, our, and the gospel claims again and again and again and again that we don't have to bear the weight of the responsibility of self-belonging, that we are not our own, that we belong to Jesus. Now, what benefits does that have? You might say, okay, well, you're, you're, you're preaching up a storm. You're yelling a lot. What, is, what, what does this mean for me? What does it mean that I belong to Jesus? What benefits? Well, I think I can go on and on on that topic, but here's just a couple. Belonging to Jesus gives us uh, true freedom. Jesus himself said, John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, modern readers, when we read that, we, we put the weight of that freedom when we put our own definition on it. And the way we define freedom, typically, is that I can do anything I want to do. <laughs> Especially America. That's like, get off my lawn, right? I can do whatever I want to do. That's freedom. That is not the definition of freedom. No one is free by that definition. I don't know if you saw the, the, uh, the, the really sad story of the NFL receiver Henry Ruggs the other day uh, uh, was arrested. He actually killed someone, which is just hugely tragic. Going 156 miles an hour late at night, slammed into the back of a car, and he had, uh, his blood alcohol limit was double. So he's probably going to spend the rest of his life in jail, and, and he should. He's not free to do that. Right? Freedom has constraints everywhere. All freedom has limits. No one is truly free in that inadequate definition of freedom. Uh, we, we usually uh, define freedom that we don't belong to anyone, that we're totally isolated. The gospel doesn't. The Bible doesn't. N.T. Wright is a famous biblical scholar, and, and I like the way he says it. He says, freedom, biblically and otherwise, is freedom some, from something so we can have freedom for something else. And uh, this, is, this is a quote. He says it better than I do. He says, when God offers us freedom, he really means it. We are set free already uh, through the gospel and the spirit and finally in the resurrection to be truly ourselves. That is the truth which is parodied by today's self-centered mantra, discovering who I really am. No, if we are in the Messiah, indwelt by the spirit, there is indeed a real self, a real you. And in the resurrection, you will at last be that real you, unique significantly different from all others, yet linked to all others through the glorious slavery of mutual love. That will be real freedom. Then, and only then, will we be able to properly think about what to do with it. Isn't that incredible? True freedom has limits, but they're set by our Lord. Who The, the, the limits we place upon ourselves 
are devastating and they lead to death. The limits Jesus places on us are meant to lead us to life and protect us and allow us to become finally and fully, fully human. We are set free from the slavery of not being human the way we were created to be restored to being, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, the icons of God that we are meant to be. So let's get back to sex. I know you guys have been eager to get back to that topic. I think it's, it's interesting that, that Paul's using that topic and this, this corresponds to our modern mind says, well, there's nothing more personal than that topic, right? You're nervous right now what I'm gonna say. You're tense because of that. Because in our mindsets, both in Corinth and now, well, you don't tell me at all what to do about that. Like, it's my body. I do whatever I want with my body. That's, that's the main sexual ethic that we all exist under. As long as I don't hurt anybody and as long as it's a willing partner or I don't have a partner, it's, it's totally fine. Well, I think we, we know that, that that has devastating effects, that, that mindset. And we see it played out in the Corinthian church. And, and Paul's like, the body has everything to do with sin. And, and we fall prey to this mindset that we are not our own and we can do whatever we want with our body. It, it, it leads to, 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 to literally death in so many different levels. God designed sex a certain way. And God designed sex to be enjoyed within certain boundaries that allow us to flourish. And Paul mentions that boundary. He points back to Genesis 2.24. Jesus also does this. And he says, he quotes this verse. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. That's God's design for sex. And whenever we step out of that design from sex, the Bible has a word for it in the Greek. It's called porneia. And Paul in this passage, he says, flee from porneia. Flee from porneia. If you think you can do whatever you want with your body, it's going to lead to devastating results for you. Flee from porneia. You may know if, if your ears are working correctly that the porneo is the root word of our word pornography. And porneo is any perversion of God's design for sexual flourishing. That yes, when we come to sex, there are limits that our creator has put in place to protect us and allow us to flourish and be fully human. Not only in sex, but in every other topic. But Paul's specifically addressing sex. Uh, pornography, we, we fall into that mindset that, that in, in pornography is, I don't have to tell you, it's rampant. I'm not going to give you stats because it would really depress you. It's rampant and, and readily available. And we fall into that mindset, like, follow me here, I am my own, I'm self-sovereign, I can do whatever I want, and I'm not hurting anyone. What's well, essentially dehumanizing to you to participate in that, and de dehumanizing to bring that person in who is willingly doing it most of the time, it's dehumanizing to them. And it breaks down the very design God has for sex and it enters us back into slavery. This is what Paul's talking about in Galatians 5. When he says, stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again with a yoke of slavery. So Paul's specific point is not to focus primarily on sex in this passage. He's using sex as an example to go to the heart of this misconstrued idea that we are our own and we can do whatever we want with our bodies. Paul's like, oh no. The gospel has claim on our bodies. And God has a design of true freedom to enter us into and to live in a way that we can flourish in every setting. Belonging to Jesus not only gives us uh, true freedom, it gives us true rest. This responsibility of self-belonging, I don't know if you feel it in your heart and in your spirit. And again, I could go on and on and on with surveys about depression and weariness and anxiety 
that is happening to our world. I'm convinced that the root of it is this responsibility of self-belonging that we gotta figure out everything ourselves and get it right. It's wearisome, it leads to a restlessness, a kind of zoocosis where we're pacing back and forth in cages of our own design. The gospel in Jesus principally gives us rest. Jesus said, come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest. That word rest in the Greek means a, a fixed place to dwell or to abide. I got a, a hammock a couple years ago. Uh, I think there'll be a picture of it in our backyard. And I just love it when I go up there and I just rock. Sometimes I'll pray. Sometimes I'll just listen. There's a good view and the wind blowing through the trees. It is like this perfect idea of rest for me. I was looking there today. I was doing yard work and I looked up at it. I was like, here's the irony. I'm never in it. I'm never in it. And I was like saddened. I was like, what's wrong with me as a human that I'm never in that, that I literally can't rest. It made me think of that, of that story with Mary and Martha, if you remember the story, the two sisters, and Jesus is hanging out with them, and they're, they're having a, a party and a meal, and Jesus is there, and there's two sisters, and Martha's the type A. She's probably a lot like me, and I'm a lot like her. There's always a to-do list. There's always stuff to get done. There's a responsibility of self-belonging. And then there's Mary, who's just, we're told in the, in the story, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Mary uh, comes in, picture the scene, and calls out her sister, shames her sister. Like, there's so much to do, Mary. <laughs> Why are you wasting your time? And Jesus, I always picture Jesus saying these things with a laugh and a twinkle in his eye. He says, Martha, Martha. He repeats her name twice. Martha, John, John. Martha, Martha. Mary has chosen what is necessary. What is necessary? Here's the king of kings and the lord of lords in their living room, and Martha's clamoring to get through her to-do list. That's this guy, <laughs> and that's a lot of you. We've got this restlessness. My spiritual director is always talking to me about the difference between living compulsively, like just like, a, I call it a, like hamster wheel Christianity, like just constantly restless, anxious, fearful, versus contemplatively, anchored, to the ruthless and never-changing love of God, which leads to peace and leads to rest. My friend David, who I think I see, see out there, we, we text sometimes and um, just like, how can I pray for you? And how can I pray for you? And I don't, I'm sure you remember this, David, but a couple weeks ago we were exchanging that and David texted me. He said, hey, answer this question for me. Because of the work of Jesus, I don't have to. Do you remember that, David? Yeah. And what a great question. I don't know if you stole that from somebody if it was your own, but it was a great question. And I, I answered really, really quickly. Uh, I said, I, I don't have to make it happen. All right? You don't have to make it happen. That's the responsibility of self-belonging. Like, oh, we got to push the rock up the hill again and again and again. It's just so tiring. But because we belong to Jesus and we've been bought with a price, we don't have to make it happen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That leads to true, unequivocal rest. The great verse of the psalmist, be still and know that I'm God. Be still. John, be still and know that I'm God. Finally, belonging to Jesus reminds us whose we are. Not just who we are, but whose we are. Think back to the baptism of Jesus. Jesus himself got baptized to set a model for us. And if you remember that scene, and, and maybe you don't, I'm going to tell you what happened. Uh, the dove kind of comes down, and, and the heavens open, and you hear the voice of God, which has been, like, incredible. 
And the, what God says is, and he says the same thing at Jesus' transfiguration, that kind of weird event where he's with Peter, James, and John, and then Moses and Elijah show up. I don't even know what's going on in that story, right? But he says the same exact thing. He says, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. There's the truth of the gospel for all of us right there. If you are in Jesus and you belong to Jesus, you're God's beloved. He's well pleased with you. Did you hear that? Some of you can't even hear that. Sometimes I can't hear that. You're, you're God's beloved. God is well pleased with you. You don't have to do anything. I, uh, I worked for four, four years with, uh, with uh, students who were developmentally disabled uh, for, for many different reasons. They couldn't uh, operate in the public school system, so they would go to the school that I worked with. And I was one-on-one I was -on -one with this young man named, named Brian. Uh, he deeply troubled and had many, many challenges in life, and I was there to kind of help him figure out. And I'd meet at his house in the morning, get him to school, stay with him throughout the day, and, and this and this and this. One year, we decided to go to an amusement park, and uh, Brian had never been in an amusement park in all of his life, and um, we were excited. It was going to be a full-day event, so we packed all the kids in the bus and, and took them off. So Brian and I had freedom to just kind of go do whatever we want. So we did. I started him small, you know, kind of some whirly-twirly rides and stuff like that, you know, and he liked it. He was, he was down. He was excited. So I was like, let's, let's do a roller coaster. How do you feel about a roller coaster, buddy? And uh, he's like, ah, great. He didn't know. He didn't even know what a roller coaster was. He's like, sure. So uh, I probably threw him in a little, little, little bit of the deep end, to be honest. But there was a brand new roller coaster that I really wanted to go on. And, uh, and it was new technology and everything. So we stood in line for like two hours while they're saying. So this, this uh, roller coaster, we got all strapped in. Picture the scene. Brian, net, you know, the roller coaster. And all he's done is these little twirly rides. And so this roller coaster goes from zero to 60 in five seconds. And then just, you know, like it's got that kind of, which is awesome. And so there we go. So boom. And like we're in the middle of, so we're like maybe 20 seconds in. And I look over to check on him and his eyes are literally bugging out of his head. And I look over and I'm like, how you doing? And then, yes, I'll never forget this. He goes, are we having fun? <laughs> No, he's like scared to death, poor guy. So he needed a witness, right? He's like, essentially he was asking, he's like, are we okay? And I feel like as a pastor this season, that's the question I'm asking. And I get from more than anyone else, like, are we okay? And if we have to answer that question by ourselves, if we're it, and we have this responsibility of self-belonging, we're cooked, we're done. We can't, no one can bear that weight. We're not meant to. But the hope is we don't have to. The gospel claims that we are very much okay. Alan, at the end of his book, he, he had a, a friend, I think, you know, in his 30s, a young family, kind of tragic story, cancer, and it, uh, they tried, he tried his best to fight it. They threw everything at it, but, but he was finally succumbing. And he was succumbing during COVID, so no one could see him. It was one of those horrible stories. And so uh, Alan wanted to visit him but couldn't. Uh, so you know, he said he talked to him a few times on the phone as, as he was getting into his last days and he was at home on hospice. And he said, I wrote him a letter. And so this is, this is a little piece of the, of the letter Alan wrote his friend. He says, there is nothing you need to do right now. Nothing you need to fix or provide for your family. You can rest. It's good to see Judy's face to talk with your son, to breathe God's air. Try to rest and delight in these moments, but don't fear or sorrow, because there is nothing good or beautiful or true that you can lose 
that you don't gain back in unspeakable fullness. God has turned his face on you and he sees his son's righteousness and he loves you. Here's your challenge. Here's your to-do this week. I'm gonna do it as well. It might freak people out if you, if you live with them, but do it. I want you a couple times this week, maybe every morning, I want you to go in and start your day and stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself and say, I'm God's beloved. God is well pleased with me. Can we do that? Look in the mirror like, I'm beloved. God is well pleased with me. And allow that to permeate all that we are. We're okay. We're okay. And we're gonna be okay when we inevitably face the doorway of death into life untold. We're gonna be okay then. But we're not okay because we're our own. We don't belong to anybody. We're okay because we are not our own. We're okay because we belong to Jesus. Father God, thank you for that truth. Uh, it's, it's frightening for me, God, to be honest, to see how deeply the modern lie permeates my mind and heart, uh, how autonomous I am from you, how self-sovereign I am at times, thinking that I am my own and no one can tell me what to do. But the gospel claims that you have claim on all of us, including our bodies, that you lay out a freedom that, yes, has boundaries, but they're boundaries meant to bring life and not death. And that you offer us true rest. You offer us an identity that doesn't need a witness other than your witness of you hanging on a cross for each of us. Thank you for that freedom, God. Thank you for that rest. Thank you for that sense of belonging that we so desperately need. I pray that it would permeate our hearts and our minds and our families. And yes, our church, God, that we would be bold and beautiful for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you're in need of prayer, know that we want to come alongside you and pray with you for whatever circumstance you might be going through. Visit newhopepdx forward slash prayer to request prayer.